Today, we are making visible the mental health of healthcare workers. What are the signs of burnout in mental health workers and therapists? Why should we care about it? Does it really matter to the rest of the public? What's moral injury? And how can other workplaces who might have similar things going on, like teachers and first responders, also heal from this? How do we speak up about our mental health to our boss at work? Is that something we're supposed to do? How do we do it in a way that's really effective? Today is an awesome show. I'm so excited to share this one with you guys. Hang on to your hats, because we are about to talk to Dr. Jesse Gold, who is an expert in the mental health of healthcare workers. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Christina Crow Podcast, where we connect the dots in search for more balanced mental health. We need to make the invisible things visible. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Christina Crow Podcast, where we connect the dots in search for more balanced mental health. Today, we're making invisible things visible for healthcare workers. In today's episode, I have the great pleasure of talking to Dr. Jesse Gold, a psychiatrist from the U.S. who specializes in college mental health, medical education, and physician wellness. Dr. Gold is an assistant professor and the director of wellness, engagement, and outreach in the Department of Psychiatry at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. She is a nationally recognized expert on healthcare worker mental health and burnout, particularly during the pandemic, college mental health, using social media and media for mental health advocacy, and the overlap between pop culture and mental health, including celebrity self-disclosure. Dr. Gold graduated from the University of Pennsylvania with a BA and MS in anthropology, the Yale School of Medicine, and completed her residency training in adult psychiatry at Stanford University, where she served as chief resident. Dr. Gold also writes for the popular press and has been featured in, among others, the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Time, InStyle, and Self. She's a member of the Expert Advisory Council for the Viacom CBS Mental Health Storytelling Initiative and co-author of the Mental Health Media Guide, as well as the Rare Beauty Mental Health Council. Dr. Gold, I am so honored to have you as a guest on my show to talk about a massively overlooked wound of the pandemic, those are my words, <laughs> which is the mental health of healthcare workers. Thank yeah, you. thank you so much for having me and caring about this topic. And sorry, my bio is a mouthful sometimes. <laughs> it's important. I wanted to include all of that stuff because I think it's so huge that you make the time to do this, right? Um, so just to kind of get us all on the same, you know, playing field here, can you just orient us to what we mean when we say we're worried about the mental health of healthcare workers? Sure. So this is something that I've thought about and other people have thought about long before COVID, healthcare workers get affected by what they do in their jobs, plain and simple. And that looks like high rates of depression, high rates of substance use, particularly prescription drugs, high rates of suicide, and also really high rates of burnout. And then COVID came and made that all worse. And that has led to increasing those rates, compounding those rates for various reasons, which we could get into if you want, but, you know, different stressors that people are experiencing on the job and how that 
has contributed to their mental health. This has been a long time. Everybody who's <laughs> listening to this, I'm sure, has had their mm -hmm. mental health affected in some capacity. But when you're giving care to other people, you often forget about caring for yourself. And it's a, a big issue that we don't do that because when we don't do that, we don't necessarily do the best caring for our patients. And I think that disconnect doesn't always come forward in all the things that people are talking about. I think we talk a lot about sleep or fatigue mm -hmm. or, you know, things like this, but I don't think that we're always talking about like, what does that mean for our mental health? And a lot of that is stigma, but a lot of that is just discomfort with the conversation and with feelings. Yeah. And there's, you know, thank you for that. To your point, there's lots of reasons for it. Some of them are the culture of like medicine or psychology or therapy, right? That that we're supposed to be the ones that are okay. That's why other people are coming to us. So like, geez, what if you know your therapist is like feeling suicidal or depressed? Well, what are they going to do for you, right? So there's there's that piece. Uh, there's also this piece of um, you know coming from the top from, from academia, like academia is rough. If you're in academia, if you're a healthcare worker out there and you're listening, it's rough. We know it's rough. We've all seen it. And then there's also this piece of the consequences to like the public. And when it comes to like, you know, medical errors or things that, you know, we're not at our best, we can actually help in the best way that we can if we're not bringing ourselves to the job, all overshadowed, I think, by the weight of the enormous responsibility that we have, and maybe as healthcare workers, sometimes we don't stop long enough to think about it because it can be crushing if you do, that we are responsible for other people's health or delivering the care, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, <clears throat> sorry, I think mm -hmm. that that is emphasized a lot in training, like mm -hmm. you are here for others, not necessarily yourself. And so you learn to ignore things. So in medicine, we ignore going to the bathroom right? Because no one else is going to the bathroom. So we probably don't have time to go to the bathroom. So that's a very simple bodily clue that your body needs you to do something, right? That everyone yeah. experiences. It has nothing to do with mental health, though. Of course, you might go more if you're more stressed out. But I yeah. do think that, you know, we learn to say no to bodily clues. So why would we listen to anxiety? And why would we listen to sadness? And why would we listen to burnout if we can't even pee, right? So right. like, I think we just stop focusing on ourselves and almost think it's selfish to focus on ourselves. Like I've, I've talked to many healthcare workers who have said that people have either told them or they felt if they cry in a room or they show emotion in a room or have a reaction to something that it takes away from the patient, like somehow mm -hmm. you're making it about yourself. And right. we're also human, right? And yeah. if one in four people have mental illness, of course, we're going to have mental illness. Like it's, it's impossible not to. So it's, it's a, huge lie to say that somehow all of your providers are the like are other fine. people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and fine. Right. Especially right. when what you listen to is really hard. I mean, uh, therapists, especially, I mean, I think that a lot of what we do in the world is listen to the darkest stuff of the world that like a lot of people mm -hmm. don't even think about or aren't exposed to, or might not even believe exist. Um, mm -hmm. a lot of people have hard lives that they walk around quite fine, <laughs> honestly. And yeah. then they talk about it and you learn a lot about things and you help people, but then you know the world's not a good place. And so, you know, you do the best you can, but that's never like gone, you know, and right. if you're having your own bad day, I've always noticed whenever something's wrong with me in my life, when I try to do psychiatry, that I'm more 
like either really disconnected because I just don't want to do it because I can't take on more or Mm. way more affected by what the person's talking about. So I can usually say like, that's what's going on with them, not me, like move on. But if I am having anything go wrong with me, like from the simplest thing, like my, my dog died when I was in residency. And I noticed that when I was trying to do work through it, that it was like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't have energy to like be there for people the right way. And everything they're saying is really, really bringing me down and affecting me in ways that it wasn't before. And I think, you know, we bring that up in training and we talk about it a little, but I don't mm-hmm. think, I, I sometimes think it's lip service or like, oh, you should care about how this affects you because it makes you better. But then they don't really like really follow up on that or make sure that you are or ask you what you're doing or give you a space to. Or model it. Or model it. <laughs> right? right. Absolutely. Like I think that's a huge problem <laughs> in medicine, right? Like if nobody else is taking off to go get therapy once a week, if you're yeah. taking off once a week for an appointment, what else is it? Like physical right. therapy, maybe, but there's not many other things that need you to go every week. So it's very obvious. And so if nobody else is doing it, then you're the person who's doing it. And what does that mean? Are you weak? Are you a bad doctor? Are you too emotional? Is this affecting you too much? Should you not be doing the job? And all those things are really common thoughts for people as horrible as they sound like out loud. Oh, totally. I mean, it's this whole piece of I can tell other people until I'm blue in the face, you should take a day off work. You should talk to your boss. Here's what you need to do. And then when it's my turn to need to do that. All I can think about is like, oh gosh, like what is, if this is the day that I'm going to miss something, or this is the day that something happened that I needed, there was going to be some critical thing and I needed to be a part of that for that person. And I didn't do my job. And so, you know, that just goes on and on and on and on. Right. Yeah. The going to work part is one of the hardest things. I think presenteeism and all healthcare fields is a big problem where the bar to not go to work is so high because what we do, other people rely on. So like if I feel sick, sometimes I look at my caseload and I go, can these people afford for me not to go to work? And that's not the right question, even though that's the empathetic, caring healthcare worker question. It really should be, am I healthy enough to go to work and do my best job for these people? And I think it's very easy to discount yourself in the equation. I work on it a lot in therapy myself, but I Mm -hmm. think like, you know, Sometimes even like, let's say I was going to go away and my plans changed and now I'm back. I don't like burdening people with caring for my patients and like covering and all that either. And right. so I get so concerned that other people are going to hate me for it. Or if they knew I came back early, they would dislike it. And really like, that's my time. Like, it doesn't matter yeah. what I do with it, but it's this like weird sense of like, I'm doing something wrong. I'm burdening other people. I, it's not okay to do that. We have enough going on. That somehow gets ingrained in us in training, but also maybe we're the kind of people who thought like that in the first place and it just gets strengthened by training, but it's a problem. The badge of honor sometimes too, right? Like that sense of identity we can get from it. For sure. I mean, I think I talk about this a lot with burnout, which is like, we're in a culture that tells us to work hard Mm -hmm. and tells us we should be tired from it. And because of that, it's very hard to... Yeah, Yeah. it's very hard to identify. Like, I actually have burnt, I'm actually burnt out because Mm -hmm. why is that not just what you're supposed to get from work? Aren't you supposed to be tired and disconnected sometimes? But I think when you get to like the reduced sense of personal accomplishment symptom, 
people go, oh, no, now I'm not doing well and people can notice. And that's what they care about. It's not the fatigue. (laughs) It's not the like, I'm not as connected as I should be or as empathetic. It's people notice I'm not doing as well or I notice I'm not doing as well. And that's a problem. And I think that's why like our culture can be so hard for that, especially to say like work is supposed to be hard sometimes, but work Mm -hmm. is not supposed to make you miserable. So there, there's a, there's a line there. Yeah. Well, and so you, you kind of bring up so many good points there, which is this piece of starting to reflect on yourself. You have to stop and pay attention long enough to both either think about yourself or take in the feedback other people are giving you and notice like, what are my particular signs that I'm moving towards burnout or I went way past burnout and (laughs) I'm going to lose it. And it's this piece of, you know, knowing like, you know, for me, I'm a little bit more snappy or irritable with my family, or I get, you know, really short with them about little things. And I check the calendar and, oh, it's not PMS. Okay. (laughs) Where are we at? Right. I can't blame it on that. So um, everyone's, there's like, there's like themes. Can you walk us through kind of like what are for healthcare? So for all the therapists listening or docs that are listening or nurses or even first responders, what are the signs that we should look for that spell burnout? Yeah. I mean, I think you're right that there are some individual signs that like are are signs of burnout. And I actually think that's really important to look for because we blow past the really obvious early signs very commonly. And because we just think that's like maybe us or we're more sensitive or we're having a hard Mm -hmm. week. But if you start to realize that that's actually a sign of work being hard, I think it's important. So for me, earlier signs, but also are quite similar for some people are like, my alarm goes off and it's harder to get out of bed. I don't want to go to work in the morning because getting out of bed means I have to go to work. But that's not what my brain's telling me. My brain's just telling me, oh, I'd rather scroll on social media. But that's not what it's about, right? Mm-hmm. And then if I get emails, especially emails that want something from me, they want mm-hmm. me to do something else. Somebody needs my help, whatever. That my reaction is like a 10 of anger. And I'm not an angry person. And Mm -hmm. I know that like, that is like me just saying like, no, like you can't do anymore. And my body kind of saying the same thing, but that's a big sign for me. I think you get a lot of physical signs that are quite similar to anxiety. So stomach stuff, heart rate stuff, um, feeling just like overall uncomfortable. I think some Mm -hmm. people do get panic related to work and, Mm -hmm. and burnout itself is a work related symptom. So if it's, all about work. You should yeah. kind of look at what that is. And I think Sunday night you know, dread. for sure, like I don't like Mondays. And I think that that's gotten harder over the pandemic. And I think, you know, those are kind of earlier signs. And like the later ones, honestly, are like where you get this constellation of three things that we use for diagnostic wise of burnout, which is like this reduced sense of personal accomplishment thing that I was talking about. Um, so like do, doing less and not feeling like you're getting as much done, um, like depersonalization is the word that they use. But in healthcare workers, it looks a lot like uh, another patient, another patient, another patient, and yeah. not a person that you're seeing. Like yep. you're very no disconnected from that. Yep. Like, and then the other thing is emotional exhaustion. So to me, emotional exhaustion can present a lot like physical exhaustion. So mm-hmm. when I'm past the point of no return, burnout wise. I don't want to do like, I just want to sleep all day. I'm like a college kid again. I woke up at noon without an alarm and I'm like, what's going on? Like, that's not normal for me. Like I Mm -hmm. like 
now as an adult, I get up almost around the time my alarm would go off anyway, because it's so used to it. But like, I just want to be sleeping. When your body actually makes a decision for you and sleeps in. Yeah, your body's like, I don't need to wake up. There's nothing waking me up. Right. And and like then you just are so tired profoundly, like after work or even during work and um, everything seems to compound and make you tired. I think it can be a physical exhaustion and emotional exhaustion is just like this kind of like I can't take anymore. Like my Mm -hmm. tank is quite empty, like Mm -hmm. for people in mental health, like we hold a lot of other people. you know, yeah. we carry other people's pain so that they don't have to, or at least so they feel recognized for it. Mm-hmm. And when you feel emotionally exhausted, it's very hard to take on anybody else's anything. So to me, yeah. that can look like patience, but it also, sometimes we can handle patience okay. And it comes out in our personal life. Oh, and yeah. like, <laughs> you know, if you're in mental health, like, especially, but I know lots of other forms of healthcare workers get lots of texts from family for other reasons too, especially over something like COVID. But I mean, I had to stop respond. Like I just put my phone away from me because every phone call, every text message was other people's emotions. And I'm a human who always listened to begin with before going to training. That's just who I am. And so my friends expect that of me and not in a, not in a needy way, not in a demanding way in like, that's what you do as a friend. Right. But I just couldn't like, that was like another thing, like another thing to hold. Relationships we have a vested interest in then, right. It's even heavier in some ways. For sure. You're just like, I can't, like, I already did, you know, whatever number of hours of patience I could hold that. I'm done. Like, I can't also listen to my friends or family. And it feels kind of bad because well, it's that, hard you want to be a good friend. Right. So I've, I've recently hit upon this thing. And like in my group, we talk about this sometimes where I borrow the word from our first responders and that, you know, we're married to like civilians. <laughs> they don't know what we're going through. And I would never do anything else. I love my job and I love my clients and I love the work that I do. And some days it's a lot and it's hard to describe to the civilians in my life that I love what that feels like, like that responsibility, that pressure for other people and for the work, it's like to do the work ethically and well, right? The the frame of place I have to be in to do that. And even though I would never do anything else, how hard that is and how do I how do I describe that and start to talk about maybe what I need from them or share that? And so, you know, of course, supervision and stuff is really important and peer support is really important for that. But I think that's another part of like what you're saying is that it's hard to carry because you end up making decisions to take care of yourself, but then it's hard to explain to your people why you're doing that, your civilian people. For sure. I mean, I think people get it sort of, right? but I don't know that they get it completely. And I've heard with healthcare workers, especially that over COVID, the people want to know a lot. Like they want you to talk about what your job's been like and they want to hear it. And some want to be supportive of what you're experiencing. Some of it is they don't have access to that because they're not in a hospital, but you're also not responsible for telling people what's going on in the world, in your story. That's your life. You can draw boundaries, right? And it's hard to do that. And it's, it's, it's like almost like people voyeuristically want to know what's going on, even if they're your loved ones. And I think it's especially hard when they're your loved ones, um, because you don't want to ignore them. You don't want to draw a strict boundary where it feels hurtful. 
or, you know, to you, because we always perceive boundaries as somehow hurting someone else because that's just how we are. Um, But I think, yeah, you're right. Like a lot of healthcare workers end up with other healthcare workers for that reason, but even other healthcare workers have different experiences and see different things, hear different things. And I think you're probably more similar because you went through similar training, similar mindset, whatever, but like what you do might still be different. And I think that can be hard. Totally. Totally. And there's, and there's like a similar, I mean, it's, so it's interesting, like we're in a position in mental health where people are coming to us and we are equipped to help, right. When they come to us and then pandemic wise, I'm thinking in the context of the pandemic, there's other professions like say teachers, for example, where they see things that are happening and it's really hard for them. Like they see what's happening with kids or with families in the school community. And they're not really in the same position to help because they're not mental health clinicians. So then they come to us so we can help them. But there's this profound sense of, I think, like moral injury that's that's out there. And I don't know if that's something that that you see or you kind of talk about too. So it's with healthcare workers and, you know, having to make decisions, say triage people or not be able to see as many people or, or help as many people as we normally would want to or can because of everything that's happened. And like, what do you think about that? Like, how do we start to heal from that? I guess maybe is the question. Yeah. So when we think about moral injury instead of something like burnout, it has a lot to do with like witnessing or participating in something that goes against your beliefs or your values. Right. And, um, because of that, it looks like sort of burnout meets PTSD and and like how it kind of, you know, manifests and what you're experiencing. And Mm -hmm. it's also often a little bit more quickly developed and more quickly goes away. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do think that with moral injury, like, you know, especially at the beginning of the pandemic resource wise, that was a big thing. Feeling like you're helping people at the expense of your family is also a thing, right? So if you don't have personal protective equipment, we didn't have vaccines. It felt like you were putting yourself at risk and your family at risk. And that's a really hard just by thing. Doing your job, yeah. Just by doing your job, which people say, oh, you're in healthcare. Don't you do that all the time? And the answer actually is no, we no. don't. No. <laughs> um, you know, there are certain yeah. jobs in healthcare where you might be more exposed to something you could get. There might be certain environments and regions where you have less protection, but you know that going in. And this was very different. And, um, you know, like worrying that you're going to have to choose between patients to get certain supplies or something, I think is a big thing. But as it's Mm -hmm. evolved, I think the moral injury has kind of become this anger almost of like having to do our jobs because of course we do our jobs, but also knowing that those people don't need to be there um, because they're sick when there are ways to help them now. Um, It doesn't need to be where it is right now. It doesn't need to be that way. And a lot of it is political. A lot of it is uh, anti-science, but a lot of it is just the messaging from the beginning. And I think, you know, people Mm -hmm. are there who are sick, who still don't believe people when they're trying to help them. And I think that's just really weighs on people a lot and they get to this point where they're like it didn't have to be that way there's a lot of it didn't have to be that way and they're like why am I doing this right which has been a big thing sort of as the waves have continued is like you notice people are leaving um because if you feel like you can't do your job as well as you could or you feel not as committed to like emotionally handling all of that like Mm -hmm. of course you're gonna Like, why would you need, like, why would you put that on yourself to stay? And a lot of nurses have been doing that. They have a bit easier 
of a way of doing that than some other healthcare professionals, just because they have travel nursing already in, um, you know, already set up so they could go to a different hospital if they wanted. And they also have a pretty good union, but mm-hmm. physicians tend to kind of take their time to leave just because, you know, maybe schooling was a bit longer. Maybe we just don't talk like that. And we don't have the support to talk like that because we don't have a union and we don't have these other options. And so I think physicians kind of have been hanging on by a thread, but I've been seeing people leaving and I don't think they're happy to leave. I think people write these articles as if like people are like, yes, I'm getting out of the workforce, but really like to choose to leave something where your identity is invested in it. Years of training are invested in it. Broken relationships are invested in it and money's invested in it. And then your identity is just so much about that. It's not an easy decision ever, let alone like in the middle of a pandemic. Pretty shattered to be in that place, right? For sure. I mean, even people taking like short-term disability that our healthcare workers have said to me, like, I feel like I'm leaving a battlefield and telling other people to handle it. Or like, you know, there's all these things like people are actively bleeding and I'm like, see ya, (laughs) you know, like even though they need it if they're asking for a short term disability. Right. So it's really complex. I I feel like I've I've heard that feeling like that feeling that you're talking about there, like even from teachers who have said I'm going on leave and I have no choice. I have to do that. And they feel they feel guilty because they're leaving, you know, the other teachers are still there to deal with it. But it's some, sometimes you just have to do what you have to do for your own health. Right. Which leads yeah. me to that kind I of. I forgot ne- that you mentioned teachers. I see yeah. faculty like in my clinic too. And yeah. I think that teachers are often left out of the mental health conversation because we're oh. so worried about their students and we yeah. should be like college kids are really suffering. And they really Mm -hmm. should be focused on. However, if college kids are really suffering, the first people who are dealing with that are the professors and they don't know how to do it. They weren't trained in mental health. They barely can recognize signs and symptoms. And when they're taught to, they don't necessarily know what to do with that. And it's a really hard burden, especially if they notice they tell the person and then like happens to all of us, the person doesn't want to get help. Then what burden do you hold of that in it? is really hard. And like, there have been a few suicides on college campuses over COVID. And I think people forget how much it impacts, not just the students, but the faculty too. And people are very quick to blame faculty and administration for all things related to things like that. And it's so much more complicated than that because there's so much more going on and it's never a one cause thing. And the mental health Mm -hmm. system in colleges, especially was broken long before COVID and administrators, when I see them after things like that, they're in a lot of pain too. It's not what they want for their college or their student or whatever. So I think it's important. It's hard to perspective take on both sides, but I have a unique ability to do that just because of having patients kind of in both groups. But I think it's important that people try to. Well, and it speaks to, I think, the importance of really taking a broader look at the systems that we all operate in. And the university and college systems of academia are so old and so entrenched. And the people who are professors now are people who probably came up in a system where it was like, suck it up, kid, tough it out. We don't like, I don't know that there was a ton of mental health support necessarily for those people. And then now being in a position where they're expected to provide it, to your point, it's just not the training that they've had or even the experience that they've had. So Mm -hmm. it puts them in a really tough position Mm -hmm. for sure, for sure. 
So when it, when it comes to that place of you start to recognize some of these things in yourself, you know, you start to, the Sunday night dread, the irritability, the, <laughs> the compassion fatigue with people, maybe things like that. There's a difference between like knowing those things and then feeling like you can do something about it. And so in your experience, like, how do we, how do we do that? Yeah. So we've spent a long time framing things like resiliency as an individual problem and making people feel like if they're burnt out, somehow they need to go do yoga and get themselves out of it. But there's nothing wrong with the policy. And so I think when I think about this stuff and what I hope people will do moving forward when they think about this stuff is think about it in parallel. Right. You need both things. I wish I could tell you that if I magically fixed all policy, not one person will burn out, but that's not going to happen, right? So you need to realize that policy change is very critical and very important, but slow Mm -hmm. and not going to change tomorrow. And at the same time, if you would like to stay in your job and not quit, which more power to you if you want to quit, but if you want to stay in your job, you need to figure out how to and make it a job that you're healthy in and a job that you feel good about being in. And like, of course, we're going to have stressors and things. And of course, they're going to be harder times than others. But the the degree to which we think about what the individual needs to do to survive is mm-hmm. a different framing of resiliency to me, which is the environment is sick. It's a bad environment. Nobody's like discounting that, at least when I view it, right, mm-hmm. which is we have a lot of problems in the way that we do work. Um, and and if we are going to work in that while it changes, we have to be able to take care of ourselves. And for me, that looks like, you know, if you're way down the part where you're like tired all the time, you're going to need a day off or two days off or a week off or a vacation. Like you actually have to take time away from the workplace to feel better when yeah. you're that far gone. You kind of do anyway, truth be told, because I'm sure people have realized like, with extra hours or not feeling like they could go anywhere for a vacation. They aren't taking those as much and realize like, it's not about going places. It's about helping your mental health. But like that sort of stuff is needed on the later times. In the earlier times, it's sort of like, what, what helps me? And like, what do I like to do that I can incorporate into my day that even if it is quote unquote, a coping skill, it isn't something I feel forced to do. It's something I enjoy. It's something I like. It's almost like a hobby. Um, paying attention to that sort of thing. And also realizing if you do have the ability to add meaning in your workplace, that's a big protector of burnout. So like healthcare workers do not get meaning from paperwork. They get meaning from patients. So learning how to figure out how that's possible to balance it isn't always, I understand policy is a big, big thing there, but understanding, yeah, (laughs) understanding what you can do to have more meaning in your day increasing social support is a big thing. So we tend to not talk to our coworkers about what we're experiencing because we don't want people to judge us or whatever. But the probably the coworker next to you is having the same experience. You don't have to talk to everybody. Having somebody you could talk to, I think, is critically important. And then control is probably the other thing, which is like we don't have a lot of control. I get it. A lot of our work days completely out of our control. But if there's any little thing you can take control of, I think it makes a big difference. So like as an outpatient provider for me who also does academics and so has like research and meetings and whatever, being able to say like this activity is a complete energy suck. This activity is a good activity for me. How do I line these up so that my whole day isn't just horrible? 
Like if I know a meeting is consistently going to be bad, can I give myself even just 15 minutes to do something I enjoy afterwards so I can get out of my system? Like that sort of little bits of control, I think makes a big difference. And we don't think about our workday as much in these like tiny little increments, but it's necessary sometimes because the whole thing we can't change, but maybe we can change something small. Yeah. Even being able to reprioritize, like, is that meeting connected to one of my values? Like, am I doing it because I started doing it at a time when I had more capacity? Maybe it was before the pandemic and I've just kept put my head down and kept like motoring through, but maybe it's actually time to reevaluate. And if I step back and reshuffle the things on my plate, it doesn't mean I'm never going to get back to those projects that are interesting and that I like. It just means that for now, I'm making a decision that allows me a little bit more breathing room in my mm-hmm. day. Allows you to choose you a little bit, even though it feels like maybe you're giving up something or maybe you're saying no to more things or somebody's yeah. going to be mad at you. Um, I think it's it's critical yeah. to do that. Like, you know, over the pandemic, as somebody who, you know, specializes in this particular topic, like even just requests to participate in stuff or help or talks or whatever. Like I like all that stuff. And and yep. when I get asked, I'm like, oh, I want to do that. I want to do that, whatever. And I have to be <laughs> like my scale for what I'm saying yes to had to change over the pandemic too, which is like yep. maybe everything is stuff you like now instead of all this random stuff that people used to ask you to do. If you like all of this, like what is, why are you choosing to say yes to that thing? And do you <laughs> actually have the capacity to? And that's like a very different way of viewing it because like when I was younger, you know, I would get asked to do all sorts of things I didn't want to do and all sorts of things that aren't in my specialty. And so it's a little easier to be like, I hate that topic. I'm not writing a paper for you just because I'm a fast writer and you need the resident that you heard was a fast writer. Like it's not, it's not happening. But like now it's like a lot of the requests are really valid and true and things that I would enjoy. But at a certain point you have to say like, why? If you or your child was given a diagnosis of ADHD, but then not really told what it means or how it might change throughout their life, maybe you've been given a prescription for medication, but not had the opportunity to engage in the rest of recommended treatment, either ADHD adaptive therapy or ADHD coaching. Maybe you've known since you were a kid that you have ADHD, but the early attempts at treatment didn't go so well. Maybe you're a parent who's worried about making the right choices for your kid regarding medication. If there's gaps in the information that you think you were supposed to have gotten, then this is the course for you. DIY ADHD is a self-paced online course created by yours truly, Christina Crow, a registered psychotherapist in Ontario, Canada. You'll get all of the foundational information to fill in all the knowledge gaps you might not even know you have reclaim your life. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about this resource, decide whether or not it's for you. And if you move forward, use the promo code CCPODCAST for 15% off. So let me ask you this question. So this is like an advice question then, I guess. So Mm -hmm. when, you know, when, when we know that it can be hard to speak up for what you need or what you want at work, if you're not sure how your your boss might react or, you know, the whole, you can see the whole, everybody's stressed, right? So 
you know, the, the management level doesn't seem like they have a lot of compassion right now, but you can logically think, well, it's because they're overburdened as well. How do you have advice for people about how to like advocate for themselves at work with their boss? How do they start to talk about their mental health if they're not sure if they've never done it before, maybe at work? Yeah. So, I mean, it depends on the boss, but a lot of people that are bosses care about the bottom line, which Mm -hmm. is like money and productivity. And Mm -hmm. if you can make an argument that feels value centric to you, that explains how your mental health is making you less productive or not able to do what they would like you to do. Those are sometimes easier arguments in part because that's what they value. And in part, because you're not having to talk as much about yourself. And I think it's hard for people to be extremely vulnerable to people that they don't know how they'll react because they worry what that means. And I think that's completely valid. And so really sticking to like, listen, like I've noticed that my mental health has not been where it it should be. I've noticed that that has made me late on deadlines or I've been not able to participate as well in meetings. And I really think that I need to revisit like some of my responsibilities or I really need to talk to you about how to make this better because like I want to do better at my job. You need me to do better at my job, but I also need to be healthy And like have conversations more grounded in that. I mean, I think there are also administrators that are more mental health understanding than others. Mm -hmm. If you're one of those administrators, I really, really recommend like saying something moderately vulnerable in front of your employees so they know you're one of those people because there aren't like it's not like you can wear a sign that says, I actually understand this and I'm not going to judge you. But I think the assumption is that every manager doesn't understand. And that's not true. I mean, there are definitely some, and you'll know that you'll notice that from friends who've tried or whatever, you know, but I Mm -hmm. think there, if you're a manager and that's how you are, please like even say like, Hey, like the pandemic has been really hard for me. I've, I've struggled with X. What's it been like for you? Like just open the conversation so that people know that you're a person that you can go to, you know, it's very obvious. Like, students come to me a lot about this stuff because I talk a lot about my own struggles. Right. And, and they know that I'm not going to go like, well, I really did well on my standardized tests and I'm an amazing person all the time because it's not worthwhile to do that. And I didn't do good on my standardized tests. So I think it's important to have like true and honest conversations, but people don't know that they can, unless you give them an in. And I think that's important. If you're the employee doing it, I think you're kind of testing whether they are going to like how they're going to react by coming to them on their level. And if what they say is like, oh my gosh, like absolutely blah, blah, blah. Or, oh my gosh, I've struggled so much over COVID too, or something. Then you can talk about is whatever you feel comfortable talking about, but they just took it down to like a vulnerable, acceptable level where you feel safer. Right. But start, start on their values it's right. an easier conversation. It's, it's not a fun one. Like I hate that healthcare and whatever ultimately is so centered on productivity and cost and whatever. Right. But it's mm-hmm. true. That's the yeah. thing. I can hate it and it can be true. And, still and so the language of your supervisors for sure. Like learn. It's almost like you're not lying. You're no. just putting it in a way that they would get it more or that it, would resonate more with them. You know, like we have to do that all the time when you're making arguments for the importance of valuing mental health or funding mental health, because speaking of broken systems, there pretty much is no other 
system this broken. (laughs) Um, But, you know, (laughs) nobody understands like that unless you really put it to them. Like depression is the number one cause of disability worldwide, but we'd rather make sure that people are all losing weight. Right. And I get it. (laughs) Like, I get it. Right. Like I get where like that eating healthy part of workplace is, is, is necessary conversation. Right. But I also think, I mean, mental health is never valued on that same plane. You get emails all the time about like, join this coaching program to lose weight. Right. But they're not like, and also value your wellness. Right. So I think it's, it's, it's It's, a mixed message for the degree to which it harms the workplace. I think it's like part of this old school way of like thinking you have a work life and then a separate magically personal life. And then you leave your personal self at home and come to work and become this like machine that only has produces an output. You know, you mentioned the word presenteeism before, which is like your body shows up at work, but your heart and soul and mind aren't there. And that's more detrimental to the bottom line. And and that results in lower performance and therefore lower outcomes at the end of the day of whatever drives business in whatever Mm -hmm. sector you're in. Right. And so you're right. Putting putting it in terms of the bottom line is that by like X date, we need to have this done and I just need X amount of time to regain some footing so that I can achieve that outcome. And so I guess if you can speak that way, then it certainly can help out and the systems have to figure out who's going to cover you while you're off. Right. But yeah, I'm a big fan of like casually tricking people into understanding. Right. Like it's like you said what you needed to say, but you said it in their language. And as a person who, you know, does admin, but also does communication, it's a lot of like you can say this stuff that they might not understand or resonate with. You have to test it first. I use humor a lot to see where I can get like sort of broach it like, oh, yeah, of course, the mental health system's broken Ah," and see like what happens, you know, and see what Mm -hmm. reactions are. But you there are ways to approach serious topics that almost trick people into having those conversations Mm -hmm. when when it's not like you're purposefully tricking them, but it's just like a more of an awareness of. Yeah, you're testing the waters. You know that they don't like the waters. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you're just making sure they can get there and you're sort of like shepherding them in. Yeah. It's never just one conversation, right? Like it's a series of conversations with increasing magnitude and intensity. And, you know, it's the ability to, I guess, pace it and chunk it that can be hard when you're feeling overwhelmed, right? Like it takes a lot of work to figure out how to do this properly when you're the one who's vulnerable already and not feeling well. And I mean, I would just say if if there's people managers listening in any industry that being able to proactively, I think also tap somebody that is a direct report on the shoulder and say, Hey, you know, like, I just, I just want to check in. Like, are you doing okay? You know, I'm just checking in with everybody. It's been a rough three years. Yeah. And I haven't checked in with you yet. Sorry, it's coming three years late, but I just want to know if you're okay. And because I think now, instead of having a work life and a personal life, we recognize we actually bring our whole selves to work and we're more productive and we do better when we can bring our whole selves to work. So we don't want to come to work and hide parts of who we are and, and fake it because like, who's got time for that? Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think in medicine, maybe that's, that's probably harder, easier said than done. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, to bring your whole self to work or to casually have those conversations or both. Both. I, yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> 
For sure. I mean, I think we do a lot of self-protection unconsciously, right? Which is, I'm safer here without feelings. And I think that's not untrue. But I think that we disconnect a lot from that Mm -hmm. um, ability to realize how much you could push a beach ball down and it'll come up um, and it will just get bigger. (laughs) Um, You know, and we're taught to push it away, but Mm -hmm. it would be better if we didn't because we would be healthier six months later when it's really bad, right? Mm -hmm. And we just have an environment that tells us not to do that and it mm-hmm. protects us from doing that because if I'm really invested emotionally like yes the world is a dark place and these things will hurt me mm-hmm. um but it's okay that they do and to say that out loud and know that that doesn't make you in the wrong profession it makes you in the right profession but it's protecting the people who are bound to burn out from the profession because they care too much and I yeah. think we have a way of saying like well, just burn out. And so we burn out all these uber empathetic, caring, amazing people. And we keep the robots like I don't want a robot doctor. So nope. we need to find a way to protect the people who care and allow them to care. And that's mm-hmm. important. Yeah. Do you do you do you guys see it in either in your institution or even even your state where you are like a bit of like a, a more significant exodus than there might have been predicted? Um, I think so. I mean, I think there's staffing issues, which you can tell are usually related to that seems related to COVID. I think we had some staffing issues before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you ask nurses, it's very hard to be the nurse who's still there when all of the other nurses are travel nurses because you have to teach yeah. them and you're the one who holds institutional knowledge. It's a big burden. And so there are things that are even like, even if you fill those spaces, <laughs> challenging yeah. for people. But I do think there's probably bigger numbers. I think I've always said, and I still believe this, that like, we won't know what that looks like until post pandemic and people get to breathe and go, right? No, like, why am I doing this? Like, this isn't, I'm not valued here. Yeah. I'm not valued here. Other people were valued there. So maybe you leave workplace or maybe you leave the field. But I think we're just like, a lot of us are still trying to keep going on an adrenaline kind of thing as if we still have adrenaline this many years later, but, but like we <laughs> worked really, really trying. <laughs> yeah. so we're really, really like pulling it out as long as we can. Right. Like please okay. still work adrenaline, but, um, it stops. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is, it is this kind of curious place that we're in right now. I feel like it's a little bit different from a burnout perspective than it was before, like this quarter, like the start of 2022 has been a bit different, I guess, and harder in some ways. Um, we've covered like a lot of topics here and I, I'm mindful of your time, but I want to just kind of say, you know, when you think about the work that therapists and psychiatrists and psychologists are doing and supporting the mental health of, of our colleagues as peers, as clients, those of us that, you know, therapists for therapists that see, that help each other out. Do you, you know, based on your work and everything that you've seen, have any kind of things that you think are really important for your Canadian colleagues here, I guess, that are listening um, to know? Yeah, um, we are human beings. We're allowed to be human beings. Um, it makes us better at our jobs actually. And 
if we can take care of ourselves, we'll be better at taking care of other people. And I know that sounds cheesy, but it it's true in a sense where like, you're not going to talk to people about heavy emotional things if you're not dealing with your own, because you can't hold that for them. You don't want to. So you avoid the conversations or you just pretend that they don't exist, right? No. If you're a, if you're in healthcare, but not mental health, you're not going to screen for emotion related things because you just don't even want to handle it. Right. And no. so it has a big like trickle down effect. And it really matters that we realize that it does and that it's not just like, oh, don't worry, like, let's prioritize them. They'll always be okay. Like, that's maybe true. But like, we're better when we take care of ourselves and we're allowed to take care of ourselves. And it doesn't make us anything but human. And I think that's hard to believe that it's something so simple or something that you feel like you've probably told every single one of your patients today, but Mm -hmm. it's important to tell yourself some of that too. And I realized I didn't even stop in my day to ask myself how I'm doing. Um, It's easier to power through without recognizing that I might have reactions, but it's, it's important to do and say like, Oh, turns out I'm allowed to have feelings about this. Like, what are they? And like, let's, let's get them out and validate them and believe them. And it's simple. We teach everybody feelings, but at the same respect, like, we need to practice a little more of what we preach. And it's, it's something that I'm not good at, despite being a person who lectures on this. Mm-hmm. I go to therapy every I'm week. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I go to therapy every week. My therapist can yep. tell you that everything that I'm telling you is stuff that I'm actively working on. And I am not embarrassed to say that. I think yep. it's important yeah. to say that. And I think that yes, you could be an expert at something and still struggle with the very thing that you're an expert in, right? But well, it's you... like walking the talk though, right? Of course we all go, you better hope your therapist goes, has a therapist and goes to therapy. Jeez. Yeah, not everyone does, but I think it helps right. too. My my therapist always says it's sort of like, there's a train of people like, you know, I support you and then you support others, but I also am supported by someone else and they support other, you know, and it's like, mm-hmm. it's how it is better you know, mm-hmm. passed down sort of like that. But um, yeah, it's it's a hard thing to do, but it's important. And, and I'm no like human, like expert, like at humaning. <laughs> like I, I, I feel daily, but I think it's important that other people know you do and that other people know you're human and that you don't feel judged for it. You know? Yeah. Thank you for that. I mean, I think a I'll share with you what you just did for me at the beginning when you answered the question. You said we're all human, and I just had this like warm flush come over my entire body, which was lovely. And so, part of I think is happening there is like the acknowledgement, right? And you you spoke to this I think actually in a recent interview that you gave somewhere where you just kind of said that just even acknowledging like the job is hard. Sometimes, sometimes it's like amazing and clicking, but there's days when it's hard. And, and it's like, I think as therapists, sometimes in some ways we feel like we've been holding up the world for three years and helping everything go because we're, you know, it's, it's incredible how many people are coming for support and therapy now than that maybe wouldn't have before the pandemic started, but just that tiniest moment of acknowledgement of like, you're doing amazing work. You're doing such important work and it's not easy. And like, look at, like, look at you, like, wow. Right. And that's kind of all of those things happened all at once and it didn't take much. Right. 
And so maybe I guess what I'm saying is it maybe isn't as mysterious or inaccessible as we might think that it is. Maybe it's some small moments. Yeah, I'm so glad that, and you know, something like that was helpful. I mean, I think ultimately there are things we're almost taught not to say, which are like, this is hard. I don't know. I'm not mm-hmm. okay. Right? All of these things inherently suggest some sort of weakness to people or something's mm-hmm. imperfect. And we don't like either of those, but all of those things make you so much better, which is to say like, work is hard. You know, I spent a lot of time saying I'm not a frontline because all my friends are in the hospital, like getting COVID, all my patients are in the hospital, right? Like, what am I doing on my couch in my house for months, right? But Mm -hmm. it took a while for me and my therapist actually calling me that and saying, but you see frontline workers as a frontline worker. And I was like, (laughs) I don't, I don't understand. Mm -hmm. Wait, what word are you using there? (laughs) Like, that doesn't make any sense, right? But it's true. And I think we need to recognize that we aren't like the separate part of the field. It's very critical that people are supporting other people's mental health. But at the same time, it's not our problem to fix the mental health system. It's if we can't take on more people, we shouldn't. The mental health system is broken. You can't fix it by breaking yourself. Yes. hundred percent. There's, there's parts of the system for for everybody. And it's right. It's like, if it's really frustrating, we have to call in Ontario, call your MP. And talk about what your family's frustrations has been, because it's how the system is built and funded by government officials. That's the problem, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's very frustrating. Thank you for calling that out as well. Um, Are there any kind of like, where can people find you? Are there exciting kind of projects coming up for you or things? I I love following you on Twitter. I love Twitter. Of all the social media apps, that would be the one I would actually keep. People might, would be surprised and they might think I'd say TikTok or something, but um, Twitter is a boatload of fun for, especially for therapists. Holy geez. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, where you can find me, I'm Dr. Jesse Gold. Like I spelled Jesse J-E-S-S-I because mm-hmm. I was a kid who was a bit of a high maintenance kid and there's no E in Jessica. So, um, you know, Dr. Jesse Gold on all platforms. I use Twitter probably more and then Instagram probably second. I think both are good places to find me. I have a website that has all my stuff, which is same thing.com, drjessiegold.com. You can mm-hmm. find anything oh, I've ever written, mm-hmm. like anything I've ever written there. I mean, I think I write more vulnerably. Sometimes I write more psycho ed. Sometimes it's really hard for me to write a lot of the vulnerable stuff. So I tend not to only do that, but I think it's important to do what I do and be honest and open myself or I feel hypocritical. So I, you mm-hmm. know, I think it's important to do that. Um, you know, I just got this grant to work on healthcare worker mental health, and I'm excited about that. Hopefully there'll be like interesting stuff that comes out of that, but it's a services grant. So actually helps people like directly on the ground as opposed to research and theoretically think Mm -hmm. about resilience, right? Which I think pisses off like literally every healthcare worker on the planet. So I think that it's important to know that like my goal is to make it so you get care and you find all the resources that you can get. And I'm really excited about being able to like actually do that and continue to change the conversation. So I'm working on a book on this topic probably mm. a year or so before it'll actually be out, but cool. a lot of the same stuff. Yeah, that's amazing. Because there's, there's not a lot of resources, are there? Like great books for healthcare workers about their own mental health. I don't, I don't know that there are, are there? 
Yeah, not a lot. I mean, there's some yeah. you can get the mental health side from some of the lived experiences kind of pieces. Yeah. Kay Redfield Jameson's books because she's a bipolar, a, yeah. a person with bipolar disorder and a psychiatrist yeah. has written book. some good books about that. But I think, and you know, Marshall it's Linnan's, in there. Yeah. Um, memoir. Amazing. Yeah. Marshall Linnan, yeah. It's like in there. Right. But it's specific or it's what they're talking about. It's not necessarily this topic, but Right. They're there, but you can always find what you're looking for. And I think if you're someone who wants to feel validated about COVID being hard, Twitter is a great space for that. I think oh, yeah. there's lots of people being really open about their experiences in ways that they haven't before. Mm-hmm. And I think that's beautiful. Um, I think Twitter, if you speak about certain things, can be really hard because there are trolls and there are people who keyword search. But when mm-hmm. it comes to feeling like, yes, this is hard, Twitter is a good place. for You me. can find a community there for sure. That's quite great. And, and I think like mentors, right? So you can also observe conversations between other leaders in the field. And it's amazing mm-hmm. when leaders in the field stand up and they're honest and they have honest conversations and that that touches more people than any of those people would, would ever know. It's pretty incredible. So that's really, really cool. So I think we can wrap it up right here. I'll make sure that all of the places to reach you are linked in the show notes. Um, I really very much appreciate you spending the hour with us when you could have had an hour for yourself. (laughs) So uh, that does not go unnoticed. Um, Really, really grateful. Thank you so much for coming. Of course. Thank you for having me. I hope everybody takes good care of themselves. Yeah. That's it for today, my friends. We hope you enjoy being a fly on the wall for this one. Leave me some messages uh, through the page on Anchor if you have any questions that you want follow up on and please check the show notes for all the relevant links that we did discuss today. If you like the show please like and share it, share it in your social media, tag us, dig a little deeper therapy and that kind of lets us know that we should keep doing this and it will help the podcast show up in all the places that you do listen to podcasts. Until next time.